Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Commons People this week, it's Brexit's birthday. Mr. Speaker, today marks five years since this country voted to leave the European Union. We reflect on the past half decade. We are entering into a period now of deep instability and uncertainty and potentially ultra dysfunctional government. And we ask, where do we go from here? For all the spin, it's clear that this Tory government has just thrown Scottish farmers and crofters under their Brexit bus. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. We've got the former Conservative Special Advisor, Salma Shah. Hi Arj. Hi Salma. And we've got the Director of the UK in a Changing Europe Think Tank, Anand Menon. Hi Arj. Hiya. Well, welcome everyone to Commons People's five-year Brexit vote anniversary special. We'll be looking at the biggest successes and failures of the last half decade, how the vote to leave the EU changed politics, and what comes next for Brexit Britain. First, we'll look at what went right and what went wrong over the Brexit saga, from which one man has emerged as the biggest winner. Let's listen. Mr Speaker, today marks five years since this country voted to leave the European Union. It has allowed us to take back control of the issues that matter to the people of the United Kingdom. It has given us the freedom to establish eight free ports across the country, driving new investment, to develop the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, to protect and invest in jobs and renewal across every part of the UK, to control our immigration system and to sign a historic trade deal with Australia. It will allow us to shape a better future for our people. Paul, uh, it's hard to paint the battle for Brexit that followed the referendum as anything other than a total victory for leavers, isn't it? Well, um, it's in the nature of the vote. And referendums require a simple majority, or the ones that do require a simple majority rather than two-thirds majority, are brutal and binary things, aren't they? They're even more brutal and binary than our first-past-the-post system, which has a different sort of uh, brutality to it. Um, and a majority of 1% is enough for winner-takes-all. And so winner-does-take-all. And the big problem, I think, uh, for Labour after 2015 uh, and for the Lib Dems to a lesser extent, was thinking they could somehow unpick that result. And um, that roar when Keir Starmer was at Labour conference when he announced this, not just a second referendum, but with the option to remain, that was the thing that got Labour Party members' uh, juices flowing more than anything else, I think, in part of conferences. And, and that's taken into account Jeremy Corbyn mania, you know. Um, and I thought it was quite revealing. Um, and after, the funny thing is, after 2017, at the 2017 election, Corbyn parked the whole issue of Brexit, you know, and he focused on austerity and cuts and domestic stuff. Um, and it kind of worked because it was the message was about a tired Tory government and it was all about domestic politics. Uh, and he did make some inroads. Uh, now, obviously, his huge advantage was that he had a prime minister, Theresa May, who was the world's worst campaigner. But um, but also the fact that she kind of got a bit too obsessed with Brexit's minutiae as well and didn't 
listen to her own soundbite, which is Brexit means Brexit. That sense of it sounded absurd to most people. What she meant was, let's just get it done. But she didn't say it like that. And I think that um, as a result, that hung parliament, the Remainer obsessed parliament, it was as it was called, then gave Boris Johnson this huge and, and Dominic Cummings this huge opportunity to say, look, you know, let's have enough of those time wastes. Let's do it. And I think that actually. The big problem for Johnson was after 2019, he had this great moment where he could have united Britain and said, there is no remain, there is no leave anymore. Let's move on. Nixon in China type moment. And he didn't do it. And why didn't he do it? Because actually he can't help himself winning the political battle, which is to keep undermining Labour by saying, look, you're, you're still in favour of, of, of staying in. And that's why you talk about European Super League, you talk about vaccines, All everything is done through a Brexit funnel. And I think that's what um, total victory looks like right now. Yeah, Anna, did it have to be like this, a hard Brexit with Johnson as PM? No, I mean, there are, there are loads of contingent things that happen. I mean, the first thing I'll say, just, just reflecting on what Paul said, was I remember the Swiss ambassador saying to me, you know, you're such a weird country because if we'd had a referendum that was 52-48, the first thing we'd do is sit down the two sides together and say, that was close, let's find the compromise. That's not our political culture, is it? Our political culture is if you get one, one vote more than they do, you do what the hell you like and ignore the losers completely. So it's partly just part of our political culture to be like that. But I mean, actually, just think about the first month after that referendum. There are two things that strike me as being absolutely crucial. The first is that a Remainer wins the Tory leadership. And, you know, thinking only Nixon could go to China, I think I wonder whether if Gove or Johnson had won the leadership then, whether actually it would have been easier for them to compromise and say, OK, look, we've won, but it's quite close. So let's do something that's a bit. So I think that would have been different. The second thing about that first month that I think we don't talk about enough was because Ledson dropped out, leaving Theresa May unopposed, she became prime minister without having had to spell out what she was going to do and having had that vision endorsed by MPs and the party. And I think if, the, if that contest had run its course, which would have required her to say, this is the relationship I am after with the European Union, and would have required whoever won then to have the backing of members and MPs for that, because they want to vote on the basis of it, I think it would have made it harder for people in, in her own party in Parliament to put pressure on whoever the eventual winner was. So I, I think it could have happened very, very differently. Yeah, and, and what do you make of uh, Labour's position, especially sort of from 2017 onwards, you know, going for the second referendum, not backing Theresa May's deal, as some of their, their own MPs were suggesting they should? I think, I mean, I think back to a piece, a really interesting piece that Stephen Bush wrote, which was sort of very counterintuitive, but as I read it, really convinced me where he said that actually Change UK, for all their electoral failures, had a massive impact. And that impact was seen in the fact that Remainers stopped supporting Jeremy Corbyn from the early part of 2019 onwards. And that was because Chucker and co had managed to say, those people don't mean it. If you really want to be a Remainer, you need to be somewhere else. Uh, so what Labour's position did was it was it alienated leavers, but also subsequently didn't allow them to hang on to Remainers. So it left them in exactly the wrong position in the Brexit debate where they'd, they'd, they'd annoyed both sides. Yeah. Change UK, also known as the independent group. Do they have any other names? I can't remember. Uh, Actually, as I said, Change UK, I, 
I, I did think to myself, Christ, was that the name? <laughs> it was one of the names. Yeah. <laughs> don't forget, of course, the other reason was that European European elections were the Lib Dems put Labour way behind, and that's what terrified the hell out of the Remainers. And then the rest is history in terms of a, a Labour panicking over a second referendum policy. Yeah, Salma, it's been a total victory for Boris Johnson and the Leavers and the Tory party so far, but could the situations in Northern Ireland and Scotland come back to bite the kind of with the kind of Brexit they've gone for. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about the Leavers and the Conservative Party is that they are not all of one shade and complexion. So you can draw a distinction even between Boris Johnson's type of leave um, versus even Michael Gove's type of leave or Steve Baker's type of leave or David Davis's type of leave. And I think that intrinsically is the thing that creates the problems now. So if we just park the Remain side of the Conservative Party, I think there's a whole breadth of what Brexit should mean. Um, and that coalition is hard enough to keep together. Um, and I think we'll see more of that, not just in terms of uh, what happens with the union, but also in terms of what happens with regulation further down the line. I mean, we already had the sausage balls and things like that. But for those people who thought Brexit was going to mean less regulation, I think they're going to be in for a surprise over the next five years. Um, what does this mean for Northern Ireland and Scotland? I think there's going to be a, a lot of sort of emotional distress in the Conservative Party. And I think Northern Ireland for a long time was not the main um, focus, it was always Scotland. And so I think Northern Ireland, even though people warned about the situation and the tensions there, um, was slightly overlooked throughout the course of the Brexit debate. I don't think it's you know any uh, you know, amazing insight to say that. Um, and funnily enough, I think it is more vulnerable now because of the nature of the tensions that arise there. Um, and I think you are going to start feeling pressure from perhaps people like Ben Wallace, former defence secretary, who as a military man did tours in Northern Ireland and understands it really you know, in depth in a way that most parliamentarians don't. Um, and we'll start seeing um, you know, those tensions rise and the fact that actually the, the, the functioning of the, of the Northern Irish uh, Assembly is going to go back to where it was when Theresa was there and they just won't be able to get a proper programme through. And you know, that alongside trying to get through um, the next stage of your, your Brexit negotiations is going to be a real um, drag on the Prime Minister's ability to talk about Brexit in a positive way, because this is going to be the prism through which we view everything. I think in a funny way, Scotland is a little bit safer because there's already been a referendum. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon feels like she's a little bit on the back foot. And, you know, if the government plays it right, they might be able to placate her for the longest time whilst they figure Northern Ireland out. So those are the sort of practicalities, um, I think, in the way that the government should be thinking about this. Um, but definitely the issue of the union is going to be a very emotional one and very difficult to manage, I think, within the Conservative benches, because there's no there's no actual answer. Um, for any of it, unless, you know, the negotiations, particularly in Northern Ireland, unless the negotiations with the Europeans go well, which they won't. I mean, things are pr pretty dire in, or have been pretty dire in Northern Ireland over the past few months, but Boris Johnson has managed to kind of spin a positive message about Brexit with the vaccines, you know, whether that's true or not. Will that change, do you think? Well, you, obviously you do think, but why will that change? Um, because once we're out of COVID, I mean, you know, can we ever really be out of COVID? That's a different question. But once we're out of sort of the immediate danger and restrictions are lifted and we return to some kind of normality, 
um, there is no way that you can avoid what is happening in Northern Ireland and the pressure that that that, that brings and the questions that that brings means that you know it's sort of unavoidable for the Prime Minister to have to engage with it in a much more serious way it can't be put as a sort of second tier issue because there's a pandemic on um, and I think that is going to really test his um, diplomatic skills. Yeah just finally um, Anand you were saying the other day you briefed us hacks um, that the, the government was sounding a bit more optimistic over Northern Ireland do you see a resolution to the dispute? It seems to me that there's no resolution that satisfies without big climb downs from one of the two sides. What the people I was spe speaking to said is that they thought the commission sounded more like it needed to justify its position because the UK line was gaining a little bit more traction. I think the government is congratulating itself for the fact that by asking for an extension of the grace period, they put the commission in a really uncomfortable situation. They could say no just before marching season, in which case you know what the British government would do. Uh, and so they've won a tactical victory, which is to say that the, the, the headlines, in fact, Paul's newsletter yesterday, I think, suggested that uh, one of the stories in there was that, that there's going to be uh, an extension. I think you mentioned it, Paul, I can't remember. That the, the, the grace period will be extended. The substantive issue remains. Now here, I don't know. I mean, the proof will be whether the European Union in their sort of technical talks with the UK government starts sounding like they're more willing to accept trusted trader, a more risk based approach, different sorts of labeling. There are technical ways of dealing with this issue so that you can get GB sausages in Northern Ireland. Uh, to date, the European Union has taken surprise, surprise, a very, very legalistic approach to this. But for the moment, there's no sign of movement on the big issue of principle. There's just sign of movement in terms of pushing back the moment of reckoning. Yeah, interesting. One to watch. Well, if Leavers have taken over the Tory party, there's also no doubt that the Tories have almost monopolised Leave voters across the country. Brexit has led to or was maybe a symptom of a massive political realignment, which has seen swathes of so-called red wall lead backing former Labour seats turn blue. But there are now questions, but there are now questions about whether the Tories could suffer in the wealthier Remain Voting South following the party's stunning defeat in the Chesham and Amersham by-election to the Lib Dems. Lib Dem leader Ed Davey even smashed a fake blue wall last week. Let's listen. Ladies and gentlemen, I mentioned a blue wall a few minutes ago and an orange force. <laughs> Do you know what happens when a really powerful, strong orange force goes against a blue wall? Stand back. <laughs> Let me show you. Anand, uh, John Curtis presented some polling for you on Monday, which showed the Tories aren't really losing Leave voters, despite Brexit being slightly in the rearview mirror. Why is that and how long can it last? Well, I think the simple answer is because he got Brexit done. And for the short term, at least for Leave voters, that is what he promised to do. And he's done it. So they're, they're pleased with that. I think it's also worth noticing that this is a government that sounds unlike any government we've had in a long, long time. And, you know, if you are Workington man, then you're getting talked about and investment is being hinted at. And so what's not to like for the moment? Uh, so the Leave Coalition is holding together as it stands. So as, as Summer says, there are issues ahead for that coalition because it's a loose coalition. And particularly if 
post-pandemic we end up having arguments about the future direction of economic policy then that conservative coalition starts to look very very shaky indeed because actually whilst they might be united on brexit and on big values issues on economics there are enormous divisions inside that camp yeah and in the, the tory party at the moment i don't know some what you made of that and the, the spending rows going on between the treasury and number 10 and, and what that might mean for the support of leave voters so i think part of it so it's slightly part of the course that um the chancellor and the prime minister will sort of kick off at each other about spending i think the interesting thing is is like why is it materializing in the in the newspapers um and so there's, there's sort of a different um issue there which is how competitive are these two people with each other and does rishi sunak really fancy his chances as prime minister so that's that i would put that categorize that separately um I totally agree that there's this big ideological question and it real, really boils down to a simple thing, which is what are the Conservative Party for, actually? And if they're at their core, it was about small state, then um, the pandemic and the leftward shift that actually happened arguably under Osborne has kind of left them uh, a little bit confused about what their purpose is. And that is reflected in um, this electoral coalition that we've seen since 2019. So Brexit supporters, so notionally in the North and the Red Wall, even though I think it's I think it's right to say that, you know, by number, there are probably more Brexit voters in London. So I think that in itself creates an odd division, because if you're trying to split it geographically, actually, that that's not the right way to split it. Um, so you are going to see lots of southern councils and um, uh, southern areas who start getting a little bit sort of worried about the fact that their resources are going to be transferred to the north because they still have pockets of deprivation that they're going to worry about as well. You know, it's not like there isn't deprivation in the south um, and there aren't challenges in London and places like that. So I think you've got to be careful with Cheshire and Amersham particularly. There's a really interesting thing here because, I mean, you may you may think I'm just sort of saying this because I want to sound sort of positive and upbeat about the Conservative Party, which, you know, I confess I, I do. I still am a Tory. Um, but it, there's a there's a bit of kind of like a return to the usual pattern, which is a by-election where you give the government a kicking. What's difficult about it is, is this like gargantuan swing and, you know, overturning a 16,000 majority, a kind of like kick for the government would have been just a reduction of that majority, but just to swing it back to the Lib Dems, I think is concerning. I think the reason the Conservative Party is going to be safe is that I don't think that the progressive, uh, so-called sort of progressive alliance on the opposite side is actually going to make much of a difference. And unfortunately, um, I don't think Keir Starmer is enough of a, a threat to the Conservative Party for this actually to have an impact at the next election. And so I think the opposition's weakness is actually, I mean, as it always is, the government's strength. Yeah, I love that you had to clarify that. I am yeah. still a Tory. <laughs> you are never in doubt. <laughs> um, Paul, yeah, well, do you want to pick up on that point about yeah, Labour? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, Sam was right. It wasn't just a kick in the shins. It was a punch in the face, that result. It, the, the sheer the sheer 
swing size we'll get a lot of Tories then worried particularly Tories who haven't been around for very long a lot of us older folk remember these swings were normal you know in the 90s you know um Lib Dems that's what they do they win by elections uh and that's why Labour actually ought to be I've talked to a lot of people, people about that result and they're quite amazingly not too amazingly for my opinion but amazingly relaxed for this one reason when the Libs do well in those seats Labour does well nationally and vice versa so you know in pre-97 no one bad an eye about the fact that you know Eastbourne Christchurch all these big seats uh, for the Tories were were falling to Lib Dems precisely because it was a sort of rising tide of this progressive uh, coalition now I think the problem is that um it's leave voters that are obviously the problem and in the North and Midlands for Labour. There's just not enough of these marginal seats in the South for, to make up for all those losses. I mean, the fact is that it's packed with marginals, the North and the Midlands. That's the nature of the, the conurbations and the small towns. So there are more votes there, more seats that matter. And Labour, how does it win them back? To be honest, in a way, by not, I can see why they're not talking about Brexit. For them, winning the leave voters is by talking about security, whether it's job security or national security or security on the street. I get that. And they're slowly beginning to use Starmer's strengths on that. The big problem for Labour, and I think for all of them, is the economics, as both um, Starmer and, and Anand have referred to. You know, the economic picture is that, you know, I think in that presentation the other day, there's going to be a 4% hit to, to growth for Brexit over 15 years. The OBA have said that. As, as, as UK and Changing Europe have said, you know, it's a slow puncture rather than a catastrophic blowout, though. And people can put up with a slow puncture until they get to the petrol station, you know what I mean? And the petrol station might well be the next general election. And... Um, Hammond said, you know, famously, no one voted Brexit to get poorer. Yeah, that's right. But there's a lot of people who think it's still a price worth paying there. And they, they'll take on the chin a bit of, you know, turbulence, a lot of those voters. And that boys, their identity politics much stronger than the economics. And the parties have to realise that, particularly the Labour Party. I mean, there was a poll this week in the eye at Redfield and Wilton. I've just seen it. 45% of voters um, said they still felt they were correct they, to opt for Brexit. 44% said um, they, were, they were still firm in their belief that they were right to vote Remain. But look at the economics bit. The British public, by a margin of 38 to 24%, thought that leaving EU had helped the British economy. Helped the British economy. There's a majority, there's more, 38% think that rather than 24% think it's harmed the British economy. That is a very revealing statistic. You might call it delusion, but that's what the punters believe. And that's what Boris Johnson is really relying on. But isn't, isn't the missing part of what you're saying, Paul, the story of political leadership? That's to say, you're absolutely right that Leave voters feel that way. But isn't part of the job of the Labour Party to try and tie the form of Brexit the government chose to economic issues in the future. So, you know, isn't the point of Rachel Reeves now to say, OK, one of the reasons why we have a, a threat of inflation is because of Brexit and is because of the impact on the pound, for instance. I mean, there are narratives you could and, and, and at the moment there's just, there's just a void where those sorts of narratives might actually be sort of, you know, rolling the pitch for an election. I mean, Labour have to hope that there are economic problems coming out of the pandemic, to put it crudely, basically, because yeah. that's, you know, that's the only way they do well in the next election. But if they're pinning their hopes on that, they might as well start practicing some lines that tie those economic failings, not simply to the fact we've had a once in a you know century pandemic and it's not the government's fault, but also to specific government choices that have made the recovery slower than it might otherwise have been. And there's absolutely no sign of that. 
think, yeah, but the, you've got to remember that they're ultimately they're terrified of this charge of, uh, we told you so, you got yeah. it wrong. Um, and that is so toxic. They know that all the focus groups show it. It's the language they use is the biggest challenge of all, I think. And the language they use, and Rachel Reeves, to a great credit, um, in the Commons, when she, even before she was Shadow Chancellor, did a very impressive speech where she dipped a toe into this stuff. And she talked about, look, the downsides of Brexit. She didn't actually even use the word Brexit. She talked about trade volumes being down. She talked about the state of the economy. And I think that's the way to do it. You don't directly link it to, to Brexit. You just say, look, this is where we are now. The problem with that is you do not get cut through with that kind of language against a campaigner like Boris Johnson. And it's, 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 so, it's so crude, but political campaigning is crude. And you need to sort of take the simplest message that you can and hammer it home. And the problem that you've got with the Labour front bench is that they're sort of terribly clever and terribly intellectual. And, you know, Keir Starmer's had this like wonderful career out being a lawyer. And what he's brought is nuance and, you know, uh, tactical advantage. He is not as ruthless as his opposition. And he's going to be eaten alive at the next election, despite everything that we're saying. Uh, and I really do think that actually, having that campaigning now and having that ability to navigate the pure politics of Westminster is going to stand um, Boris Johnson in better stead than Keir Starmer, who's just going to sort of wither away, you know, worrying about his nuances. And as you say, you know, Rachel Reeves talking about trade volumes, where is that going to cut through to the average punter's, uh, you know, psyche? I think the counterpoint to that is the way she phrased it. She, she was smart enough not to talk about Brexit, but what she did talk about was made in Britain. And she started saying, look, we need to start boosting our manufacturing base. How are we going to do that? In other words, it was all about the advantages of Brexit, how to maximise advantages of Brexit without saying or that we're going to renegotiate Brexit, because that would be an utter disastrous you know, rabbit hole for Labour to go down. They know that. That will kill them at the next election. Every question next election, well, what's your renegotiation going to look like? When will you do it? So they can't go into that. What they do have to do is pride in Britain, British manufacturing, direct investment. I mean, Faisal Islam tweeted, I think yesterday, you know, for the latest foreign direct investment figures for Britain, down 17% year on year, 32% down since 2016. Those are massive figures. And Labour's got to say, no, it's not because of Brexit, but they've got to say, look, this is happening. How do we solve it? What is our solution? And I think they, they can't just walk off the pitch on that. In the kind of post-truth era, when Boris Johnson goes around saying everything is brilliant because of Brexit, whether it is or isn't, how do you take that on if you're Labour? I think it's very difficult, very, very difficult. You know, he's, he's a, let's not forget, I think people do forget, it's not just the pandemic is the reason Labour are behind in the polls, it's Boris Johnson is the reason Labour are behind in the polls. He's a formidable politician, he's very good at it. Um, and it's going to take a formidable challenge to, to, to reverse it. You know, I mean, personally, I thought Labour should say, we'll, we'll, we'll deliver you a better Brexit. But the problem is they don't even start like saying the word Brexit. They might like saying the word better, but we will deliver you a better Brexit. We'll go down well in, in, in Northern seats. The problem is, as it was for Theresa May, and here's a lesson that I think Labour should take, is that it is no longer, in, in, in the mind of the voters, Brexit is done and it is over. And if you try and cast things, however true it might be to cast things through the prism of this new treaty with Europe, it is going to be lost because it, it's the same thing that happened to Theresa in 2017, is that she 
kept talking about Brexit and in the mind of the voters, Brexit was done. Why isn't she talking about something else? Which is exactly why Corbyn's pitch on domestic politics works so much better and domestic policy works so much better and spending works so much better. Labour needs to decide whether it's going to take its old route, which, you know, the Tories have slightly stolen these clothes on, uh, of sort of spending its way out and making big promises and big, um, uh, taking big hits to the balance sheet on spending, or whether actually it's going to try and steal the Conservatives' clothes and talk about sort of, you know, you mentioned FDI, talking about creating a much better economic environment for people to want to invest in. But I would sort of counter you, Paul, and say that doing it through the prism of Brexit will be the wrong way to do it. You need to talk about it as if it is the economic picture and what is our economic vision versus the Conservatives' economic vision. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right overall. I think that's why Reeves didn't mention Brexit. I thought she's she's the best person to do it for them. Well, this is a good time to talk about polling published yesterday by Ipsos Mori, which suggested that most people feel Brexit has hardly made any difference whatsoever to their lives. More than half said it had made no difference, with just one in 10 saying it had made life better and 30% saying it had made it worse. Perhaps most interestingly, 71% of Leave voters said Brexit had made no difference to their lives. Brexit Minister Lord Frost was recently asked what the benefits of leaving the EU are. Let's have a listen. We're also creating a, a new unit that will work to me uh, on this subject and we'll be recruiting shortly um, for a head of this unit outside government. We want to bring in somebody who uh, you know, has access to the kind of thinking and ideas from think tanks and outside government uh, as well as uh, knowledge within. So we're just beginning this process. Uh, and it will obviously some of the benefits will take time to show, but we're we're off on a journey that will uh, bring huge benefits. Um, Salma, do you have any insight into what the government actually wants to get out of Brexit and the new freedoms? Um, well, I'll go back to my first point. I don't think uh, there is a clear idea of what Brexit is. Um, and I think going back to your very first question, you know, could it have been different? I think. Um, had Boris Johnson or Michael Gove been in charge rather than Theresa May, we might have ended up with, I don't know, a Norway plus rather than what we've got. Um, so I think Brexit is what you want it to be. And that's the other thing that's sort of so brilliant about, I mean, I say brilliant in, this, in the political sense uh, in, in what the prime minister has done because he can sort of make it appear to be whatever it needs to be at the right time. So it can be positive. Um, and it can be about sort of delivery. I think he's got to appeal to those red wall seats. And I'm sure there's going to be like lots of focus grouping going on about what that means. And for most people, as we've discussed already, it's not an economic thing. It is that that sense of control and that sense of sovereignty. So I imagine um, immigration is going to play a big part in it. Um, how that's measured, I think, is going to be interesting, um, you know, as a former Home Office Special Advisor, you know, that, that sort of the thing that dogged the Cameron years, the net migration target. I think that will be an interesting thing to see how that sort of compares in, in the new immigration system um, and whether that is going to be some kind of, I mean, I imagine not, but some kind of metric that's going to be held up to sort of pr prove that point of control once freedom of, well, in fact, freedom of movement has ended, but, you know, once we start seeing the sort of impact of that. Um, and so I think it, I, I don't think it's going to be something big and broad. I think we're going to see sort of different aspects of what Brexit has brought and, and see how that's spun into 
um, positives uh, about what Brexit should look like. So it's, it's like it's always been a bit of a hodgepodge. It'll be interesting, won't it, if net migration, say, from outside the EU goes up. What, what consequences could that have, do you think, for Boris Johnson, if any? I'm not sure. Given that he's never made a big thing of the numbers, I think if you if you set yourself a target and don't meet it, that's a problem. Um, but if, he, if he's talking about, if he sort of um, talks about getting all the right skills in from all these different places, and of course, you know, numbers will be part of trade deals and trade negotiations, uh, even, though, even if they won't be sort of... Um, uh, up front in terms of the headlines. I think that could also, I'm sure he could turn that into a net positive, you know, talking about social care workers coming in if we've done a trade deal with, you know, the Eastern countries, for example. I think he could, I definitely think he could make that positive. In a way, I think it's actually quite good for Labour that the whole immigration debate may now be killed by Brexit. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to get jump hurdles and tie itself in knots about the language it uses and have those mugs saying, you know, controls on immigration or whatever that no one believes. I mean, I think actually for all of us in a strange way, as we always know that throughout political history, when the Conservative Party actually has a tough message on immigration, the far right don't thrive. And um, hopefully that you can't park immigration as an issue, but you can certainly take the heat out of it. And I think that the political heat will be gone for Labour. I think they'll be quite grateful. Yeah, Anna, just very quickly, what are some of the dangers now that we face, now that we've come out, we're out of the transition period, the government doesn't have a kind of coherent vision of what to do. What, what, what could we see? What difficulties could we see coming up over the next few years? Well, I think you'll see fights within government about what this should mean. I mean, it's not just that the government doesn't have a coherent vision. I mean, the most delicious irony about Brexit is Euroscepticism started with a bunch of Tory MPs who wanted deregulation and saw Brussels as an encumbrance on the UK economy. The final Brexit negotiations nearly stalled because Boris Johnson wanted the right to have loads of state aid to make us a bit more like Germany, uh, you know, not a bit more like a Thatcherite economy. And the, the negotiations almost blew up because we were too economically left wing to fit within the guidelines that the European Union wanted to set for us. So what Brexit means now is, is totally open for debate. It seems to me that our original group of Eurosceptics have lost. This idea that we're going to profoundly deregulate the British economy, get rid of all that cumbersome Brussels regulation is for the birds, I suspect, given the nature of the Tory coalition. The question for the government, I suppose, is whether ultimately, and it might not be now, it might not even be before the next election, but whether ultimately there are some Leave voters who actually expected practical positive consequences that can be pointed to. Uh, you know, we did some work with this group of comfortable leavers, a series of focus groups, and their aspirations for post-Brexit Britain were sky high. Uh, everything from far more investment in public services to bringing back British manufacturing. And they saw all those things as possible post-Brexit. And my, my, one of my sort of, one of the questions for the future is whether at some point people start saying, hang on a sec, Brexit was meant to deliver this and it didn't. There is absolutely no sign of that happening at the moment. If I can, one very quick point on immigration, it's worth stressing just how much public opinion has shifted on immigration in two ways. Firstly, the British public as a whole is far more positive about immigration in terms of both cultural and economic implications than it was before the referendum in 2016. And secondly, and as striking, immigration has totally fallen off that Ipsos salience graph. 
Uh, I think for the first time since the early 2000s, when New Labour was tying itself in knots about asylum seekers versus refugees, uh, immigration simply does not figure amongst people's priorities anymore. And I think that is a really interesting development. Yeah, interesting. Well, we've done five years of Brexit in about half an hour. Well done, everyone. But that means it's time for the quiz. Yay! Oh, which is, of course, all on Brexit. Um, if you know, oh, no. oh, <laughs> win. If, if you know the answer, uh, just shout it. Uh, question number one, which MP infamously scuppered the so-called Super Saturday debate and vote on Brexit and how? Oh, God, who was that? What do you mean scuppered? Did, someone, did someone resign? Well, it wasn't very super in the end because nothing really happened. Nothing changed, essentially, sort of. Yeah. Uh, did someone... Oh god. That wasn't it wasn't that wasn't Boris Johnson's resignation. No. No. It was um it was in uh 20 Give us a clue. No, oh, this was this was um Michael Gove coming out for Brexit. No, no. Is no, that no. Right? No, no. No, no, this was that Saturday sitting of yeah, Parliament. Yeah, Saturday um, sitting which it was, was a real waste of time. In 2019 I had to mislead United centenary game for it which was a bit of a shame but there we go. Yeah, what happened that day? The vote happened. It was a real damp squib, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Who was? It must have been. No, of, I don't remember it. <laughs> there was there was one MP which made who made it a damp squib by Speaker. doing something. Ah, Letwin. Yes, well done, Paul. Oh, get it. Oh. <laughs> that reflects very badly on you. you know? Yeah, it does. <laughs> we all had to give up our Saturdays and head into Parliament. That's why he remembers. Um, yeah, Oliver Letwin tabled an amendment into what was yeah. meant to be a, a kind of big decision vote, uh, which effectively scuppered that big decision by triggering the Ben Act, which was another piece of legislation which forced the PM to delay Brexit because a deal hadn't been approved in legislation. Yeah, Prime Minister Letwin, as you'll always be known. <laughs> yeah. uh, right, second question, Paul's one up. When Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament in 2019 to limit the amount of time MPs had to vote through legislation to block no deal, how long was it not sitting for before the Supreme Court overturned the prorogation? Oh, oh, six weeks? I'm going to random three, guess. Three weeks. Okay, four weeks. Two weeks. Damn, I was closest. I actually get the point. Yeah, I'll give you a point. You were closest. Give him a half. <laughs> no, no, it's a point. It's a point. So it's one all. Uh, I don't like your quiz. <laughs> you're the you're the Brexit expert here, Adam. You're trailing behind. <laughs> um, what was the name? Thanks, Adam. <laughs> what was the name of the company that had no ships that was contracted by Chris Grayling to run oh! carrying crucial supplies into Britain in the event oh, of no deal? God. God what was this was your scoopage. Um, oh God. It was like, it sounded like it should have been a finance company or something. Didn't sound like a shipping company. Yeah, no. basically. Not cruises or... No, it was like, it was like, it was something, it was something freight. It was something freight, like sea freight or something like That's that. That's very close. I will give you half a point to take the victory. Well done, Salma. It's Seaborne Freight. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> 
Congratulations. That doesn't sound like a financial services company, though, does it? So you can take the point back off. <laughs> She's just throwing you with, uh, you know, it's uh, dead cat stuff. Maybe that was one of other, but maybe that was one of Chris Grayling's other. Yeah. <laughs> Procurement. I'm just, I'm just pleased that Lancashire got all the points. Yeah. Um, We've got to win at something. Yeah, it's a good point, Anand. You're representing Yorkshire alone. Uh, you know, <laughs> what, without you, well, I I, I'm you asking the question, <laughs> right? Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me, and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels. And please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the War Zone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with the Queen, her first face to face audience with Boris Johnson since Covid struck reflecting on Matt Hancock's difficult year. The Prime Minister, Your Majesty. Good afternoon. Your Majesty. It's uh, very nice to see you again. Lovely to see you again. It's been, it's been 15 months. I'm it's 15, 15 months, months since yes, we were last. It's most extraordinary, isn't it? I, it is. I've just been talking to your Secretary of State for Health, poor man. He came for Privy Council. Oh, yes. He's, he's full of... Uh, from beans. Oh, yes. Yes. Things are getting better. Well, uh, they are. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.